0: This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast, number 120 Men. I am Hal Hammonds, and I am a citizen of heaven, and your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for checking in this week. What does it take to be a man in today's society? It depends on who you ask. Some may say, get in touch with your feelings. Others might prefer kickboxing classes. But when we ask God, we get a very consistent message, one that focuses on the heart more than emotions or physical strength. This week, we'll discuss how the proper use of a belt can make all the difference, the best example of a man's man from modern fiction, the curious closet culture of barbershop quartets, and what board games Walt Disney World and A Weird Bavarian King have in common. Let's start with what I've been preaching. If you are wearing a long flowing robe like an Israelite would in Old Testament times, and if you needed to engage some kind of physical activity, what you might do is wrap the skirts of your robe and tuck it into your belt so that it remains secure, so that you're able to work, you're able to move freely, and the skirts don't get in your way. Girding up your loins like a man, therefore, starts to take on relevance with regard to adulthood, with regard to why you're different from a woman and that sort of thing. And and I don't want to get too deep into the weeds here with regard to male characteristics and female characteristics and how much the one can have to do with the other and still respect the way God made us. I think it's enough to say just in general terms here that there are differences between the sexes, and God gave us those differences. And instead of pushing back against that, we probably ought to be more inclined to rush into those things and be the best man or the best woman that we might be, given what God has given us to work with. And that's what I want to talk about here a little bit, how we can be godly men, how we can be people who are the way that God intended for us to be, as is brought out by this term here, girding up your loins. In Job 38, verse 3, and also in Job 40, verse 7, God tells Job to gird up your loins like a man. And what he means by that is, you need to grow up. Job has spent the better part of the book here, most of the previous 37 chapters, essentially whining. He's feeling pretty bad. And he keeps asking God for answers. He wants God to give him answers. And God basically slaps him around a little bit here at the end of the book, saying, you don't understand who you are. You don't understand who I am. I'm going to give you the truth. You need to quit acting like a child. You need to start acting like a man. It's childish for us to assume that the world is supposed to make sense. And if somehow it doesn't make sense, then things are broken. God tells us throughout the Bible that the world doesn't make sense. Yes, it's because the world is broken, but we broke it. We broke it back in the Garden of Eden. And ever since then, we've been struggling against the problems of the world, things that we don't necessarily have any control over, things that we did not choose for ourselves, things that God could fix for us, but oftentimes, in fact, usually chooses not to fix. That doesn't mean God's asleep on the job. That doesn't mean that we are deserving of answers or retribution or such thing as that. That's not the way the world works. And most of us as grownups come to realize that. Job has forgotten it. We all forget about it from time to time. And so God tells him and tells us also, start looking at the world like an adult. Quit being like a child. Quit whining and start behaving like a grown-up would behave. Go to work. We talked about the practical aspect of girding up your loins. And lots of times the idea of going to work is seen, literally going to work, is seen in this idea of girding up your loins. I'll refer you to Jeremiah chapter 1, In verse 17 and following, where God tells Jeremiah, Now gird up your loins and arise and speak to them, that is the people he's going to. All which I command you, do not be dismayed before them, or I will dismay you before them. Now behold, I have made you today as a fortified city, as a pillar of iron and walls of bronze against the whole land. To the kings of Judah, to the princes, to its priests, to all the people of the land, they will fight against you. But they will not overcome you, because I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. This is work that you're going to go to, and literally girding up your loins is not going to help him preach the gospel, obviously. This is not literal work, not physical work anyway, that we're talking about. This is talking about spiritual work that is not going to be easy. Jeremiah, like Isaiah before him, is told, you go out there and preach to people who are not going to listen to you. I'm telling you right up front, they're not going to listen to you. This is a thankless task that I'm sending you to, and you need to go, and you need to do it anyway. Such is the case for us as we go out into a difficult world and we're told to make a difference in the world, in a world that is determined to sin. That seems like an onerous task. Brace for impact. That is to say, the work that you're called to do is going to have a profound negative aspect to it, at least from time to time. God is telling you to go into a world that is going to shock you, a world that is going to rock you to the core. You're not going to like what you see when you go out there. Isaiah chapter 8, In verse number 9, in the middle of this prophecy about the Emmanuel that's going to come, which has profound implications with regard to short-term and long-term things, we're not going to get too much into that. The main point is that Isaiah is telling King Ahaz here, troubled times are coming and God is in control of these things, including and particularly when things go against the people of Judah. He says, be broken, O peoples, in verse number 8, and be shattered and give ear all remote places of the earth. Gird yourselves, yet be shattered. Gird yourselves, yet be shattered. Devise a plan and it will be thwarted. State a purpose, but it will not stand for God is with us. God's with us in a negative way in this particular situation. Realize that God sees what we've been doing and he's going to punish us for this. Go ahead and get ready. Prepare for battle. But you're fighting against God. How do you think it's going to go for you when you fight against God? Certainly mankind over the years, Judah then, America now, me personally now, we are due for some chastening. Hopefully, if we approach this like a man, and that's whether you're a man or a woman, by the way, if you are a grown-up, if you take an adult attitude toward these things, you can and you will prosper. God will lift you up. He will help you get to the next stage in your spiritual development. Anyway, that's what I've been preaching. This is what I've been reading. Clive Cussler is one of my favorite fiction authors these days. Atlantis Found is one of my favorites of his. I could just as easily be talking about any number of others. Atlantis Found does a good job of doing what Kessler does best in my mind. Taking a story, maybe it's mythological, maybe it's literal, from the past and bringing to light in the modern day. Atlantis is not actually this mythological city that was destroyed, etc. There's actually Atlanteans among us that had a part in the Third Reich back in Nazi Germany, and that continues to have a part to play in the modern day. And they have these grand plans for remaking the earth, et cetera, et cetera, I don't want to get into a big discussion of the plot here, but it's a good example of how these stories are crafted. And at the core of all of these stories, at least all the ones that I have read, is his main protagonist, a man named Dirk Pitt. Dirk Pitt is of unimpeachable character. He is always the good guy. He always makes positive decisions. He survives because he acts like a man. Dirk Pitt always finds joy in his work. He is always positive. He is always upbeat. Now, if you were effectively a professional scuba diver, you might take joy in your work too. That You could easily make that argument. And I understand that argument. Some people don't have the opportunity to do jobs that they genuinely love. I understand that. I do have a job that I love. Maybe you do. Maybe you don't. But regardless of what job you have and how much it tickles your fancy in the short term, there is always joy to be found. There's always a positive spin. Even if you like being a professional scuba diver, even if you like doing all these grand adventures and traveling the world, there are going to be moments You're not going to be happy, that you're not going to be pleased. Dirk Pitt finds himself in all kinds of crazy situations. And in those moments, he resorts to humor, he resorts to self deprecation, he resorts to lightening the mood, not just for himself, but for his companions. Most of the time, he's caught up with people who do not have his experience, who do not have his grounding or his expertise. And part of his role in that situation is to make life easier for them. And I really appreciate that. That's what Dirk Pitt is able to do. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, for instance, in verse number 18 and following, Solomon here says, Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting, to eat and to drink and to enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he enjoys under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him, for this is his reward." Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he himself has also empowered him to eat from them and receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. For he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. And this is talking about a culture where you didn't get the career of your choice. You became a farmer, you became a rancher, and you hoped to survive. You did the best that you could. It wasn't pleasant work, it wasn't unpleasant work, it was just work. Whatever you do, though, he says, you give it the best you have. You are strong in your efforts, in the cause of your family and in the cause of God, ultimately. There is a way to find pleasure there. There is a way to whistle while you work, if you will. And do so without any complaints, without emphasizing the negative. There's always going to be negative. There are always going to be things to complain about. Our character as adults, our character as men, shows in how we are able to endure difficulties without complaining. Because complaining has a tremendously negative effect on other people and on us as well, by the way. You may think that you're coping with your circumstance by whining about it. But in reality, you're just bringing yourself down and probably bringing others down as well. I like the story that Jesus tells in chapter 17 of Luke, verse number seven. Which of you having a slave plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat. But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you may eat and drink. He does not thank the slave because he did the things that are commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say we are unworthy slaves, we have done only that which we ought to have done. The point here is that we are slaves to Christ. We are enslaved to him. We owe him everything. And when the task is difficult, when it is onerous, when it lasts a long time, that doesn't mean that somehow Jesus owes us a break. He does not. We are required to continue to serve, realizing that it is our privilege to serve in this house. We have no excuses for not measuring up to the standards that Jesus has set for us, that he has required of us. In Luke chapter 14 and verses 16 and following, we see the story of the great dinner that's given by this great man and invites everybody to come and they all have excuses. There's always a reason to reject this bounty that their master is giving them. Whether we can or cannot come up with a good excuse is irrelevant. There's a job to do, and we don't have any excuses for not doing it. There's work to do. I need to do it. That kind of attitude will serve us well in the Lord's kingdom and in life in general. And one other thing that helps a lot is when you surround yourself with like minds. All of Pitt's associates, think like he thinks, his buddy, Al Giordano, his boss, Admiral Sandecker, they all had that same kind of mission focus, the same kind of priorities, the same kind of love for good work and for good people. When you have a company of people who are supporting you and encouraging you and helping you do the right thing, making good decisions, that makes all the difference in the world. It's tough enough to do this job when you have help. It's impossible to do it or seems like anyway, impossible if you don't have any help. So let's be that kind of support to other people and seek out people who can support us, people who are genuinely committed to the cause of Christ, people who want to work. If we surround ourselves with people who want to work, they will bring out the best in us, and we'll bring out the best in them. And all of us together can accomplish great things in the cause of Christ. Anyway, that's what I've been reading. this is what I've been hearing. I have a good friend named Brent. Brent is a Christian. Brent is a good man. I would trust him with my life. We have fallen out of touch because of one thing or another, but I know where he is and I know that I could call him at a moment's notice and he would be there for me. He's that kind of guy. Brent, he's just weird. He's a weird kind of fella. And Brent, if you're out there listening, I apologize if you take this the wrong way, but I know he's not going to take it the wrong way because Brent would agree with me. Brent's got an odd way of looking at things. He has an odd set of sensibilities. And it really shows up in his music. Brent is obsessive with barbershop quartet music. He sings it, he listens to it, he promotes the gospel of barbershop. I find that fascinating and and wonderful. I like Barbershop fine. I don't listen to a whole lot of it. It's like a lot of other musical genres. Uh, these days, I'm really into jazz. Sometimes I'm into Beethoven. Sometimes I'm into Bruce Springsteen, whatever it happens to be. I'll listen to the same kind of thing a lot, and then I won't listen to it at all for a year or whatever. Barbershop is like that. I can go two years without listening to Barbershop and be just fine. Brent could not do that. But I appreciate the reason why it is attractive to the people who love it. And I certainly appreciate the reason why it is rejected by the overwhelming number of music lovers. It's, it's just weird. It's like Brent. And I love Brent for this reason. And I love barbershop for this reason. Barbershop people embrace the weirdness. It, now, maybe I'm taking too much for granted here. Let me back up a little bit. Barbershop quartet music is acapella four man The four of them coming together, singing distinct parts, create a harmony that is remarkable. That is perhaps the most pure harmony in any musical genre that there is. It doesn't sound like anything else. And it hasn't been tremendously popular for the last hundred years or so, maybe even longer than that. And instead of trying to cater to the masses, instead of being annoyed that they've never had a top 40 barbershop quartet song, barbershop aficionados instead embrace the weirdness. They have the fancy outfits. They walk around in quartets. They spring into song at a moment's notice. They have conventions for one another where they're going to listen to barbershop. It's an amazing little subculture that I'm not about to join up with, but that I can appreciate. They're not bothered by the fact that they're so profoundly different from every other musical genre. They like it that way. They're not opposed to more people coming in, but if nobody else comes in, they're perfectly fine with that. And that embracing of the weirdness will do us well, I think, as men and as women in the Lord's church. We are simply not going to fit in very well in the world. We need to appreciate that. We need to rejoice in that. There are values that we have as Christians that others simply do not have and do not want, and it's likely to remain that way. I like the way Peter phrases it in 1 Peter chapter 4, in verses 1 through 6, "...therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourself also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin." so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this they are surprised that you do not run with them in the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you but will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. Being different is not a bad thing. If you are called out of the world and called into Jesus, that's going to reflect a different value system. And the people out there who embrace this old sinful value system are going to think you're kind of insane for not doing it their way, and they may make fun of you. They may poke fun at your your little straw hats and your brightly colored vests and your striped pants and will go way out of their way to make you feel out of place. We like being out of place. We like not fitting in to this world because the things of this world are abominable to us. They're abominable to Jesus, and we have rejected them. We want to be different. We want to have different values. We want to have a different style. In Ephesians chapter 5, the contrast between the ways of the people who live in darkness and the ways of the people who live in the light are specified for us here. This should not take us by surprise. Verse number one of chapter five, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you, and gave himself up for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God, as a fragrant aroma. But immorality, or impurity, or greed must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which is not fitting, but rather giving a thanks." For this you know with certainty, that no immoral, impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. We reject those things because we are looking for what is pleasing to the Lord. That's what verse number 10 goes on to say there, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. That's what we want. We know what pleases the world. We're not interested in pleasing the world. We're interested in doing things God's way. And our style is going to differ from their style. We're going to dress differently. We're going to entertain ourselves differently. We're going to speak differently. And again, that is a good thing for us. We want to embrace this weirdness that comes with serving Jesus Christ. The message that we carry that is so uniformly rejected by so many people out there in the world, many of whom are trusted for their wisdom, trusted for their intelligence, we realize that there are people who disagree with us. We're not happy about that necessarily but we're happy that we're with the Lord. We're happy that we're accepting His will for our lives. And if others don't have the wisdom and the good sense to join in with that, we're not going to reject Jesus simply to fit in better with the world. We know what 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 and following tells us, that the wise man of the world, this, the one who is perceived as being wise, far too often does not accept Jesus. He thinks his way out of faith. And we, as the people of God, Embrace the wisdom of God rather than the wisdom of men who sometimes come to think of themselves as God, who find it intellectually gratifying to exclude God from their conversation. We're not going to go in that way, and whoever does go in that way is not going to change us. We would rather be alone with God than be in a company of unbelievers. The reason that the narrow gate is narrow, as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, is because not a whole lot of people are going to go there. We're not discouraged by that. You know. If I'm out on the highway and if there are two people who are going the direction I'm going and 10,000 people who are going in the opposite direction, that doesn't immediately make me think I'm wrong. That just tells me that a lot of other people are going that way and I'm going this other way. And I know in my mind that I'm going in the right direction. Now, sometimes I'm wrong about that, but that's another story. I am going to strive to enter in at that narrow gate. It's important to me. If there's not that much company with me, if not many people appreciate what I'm trying to do, what I'm sacrificing, I'm not going to be bothered by that. I'm going to rejoice with Jesus along the way, and I'm going to rejoice with Jesus when I arrive. Anyway, that's what I've been hearing. This is what I've been playing. Ludwig II, king of Bavaria, was a real person with a real fixation. He loved him some castles. He built them all over the place. He built them the crazier the better, the bigger the better. There's a reason why he's called Mad King Ludwig, by the way. One of his castles you've probably seen, the Nuschenstein Castle. I have a jigsaw puzzle with the photograph of Nuschenstein Castle. I'm sure I'm butchering the pronunciation. German speakers everywhere, I apologize. If you don't know this particular castle, you may recognize it from... Walt Disney World in the Magic Kingdom, Cinderella's Castle is modern after Neufstein Castle. Board game designers have fixated on King Ludwig, and in particular with regard to one of our family's favorite games, Castles of Mad King Ludwig. Your job is to build a castle. And again, the crazier, the better. Basically, you have bedrooms and bathrooms and utility rooms and kitchens and outdoor rooms and entertainment rooms. And it's not just an individual kitchen. You might have a buttery. You might have a baconry. It brings up the question, though, what are you trying to do when you're building all these castles? Are you trying to get famous? Because if that is the goal, then it worked. King Ludwig is world famous for the things that he's done, and now you know a little bit more about his construction projects also. But in the end, if you bankrupt yourself, if you bankrupt the entire nation, if you get committed to an insane asylum, is that really the kind of fame that you're looking for? Are you simply trying to enjoy yourself? Are you in a position where if you want to build a room entirely devoted to the making of butter, then you can do that? Just follow the whims of your fancy anywhere they happen to lead? Some people are in position to do that. Solomon was in position to do that in the book of Ecclesiastes. It doesn't tend to go well. It tends to be remarkably self-destructive, actually. Or are you trying to be someone who makes a difference, someone who actually accomplishes something? Are you trying to build a castle that serves, a castle that has a function, that has a form, that has a purpose? I like to think that's the kind of castle that I'm building, that that's the kind of house that I'm building in Casa Hammonds, that that is the kind of life that I'm building for myself, for my family, the kind of church that we're building here in Georgetown. Not one that makes us famous, not one that makes us indulgent but rather one that serves a purpose, and especially with regard to spiritual things, serves God's purpose. Jesus didn't have this kind of attitude. In fact, when he seemed to be on the verge of superstardom, he started chasing people away. You remember the story in John chapter 6, verse 26 and 27, how the people came thronging to him the day after he fed thousands of them with a handful of food, and he rebuked them. He said, you are not coming to me because of the words I'm speaking. You came because you ate of the loaves and fishes and were filled. That's all they wanted, and he refused to give it to them because he didn't simply want to be the guy who feeds people. He wanted to be the one who feeds their spirits, and if they weren't going to be fed spiritually, he wanted to go someplace to find someone who would be fed spiritually. Popularity, fame, it can be in the way of our actual goal if we're not careful. The same thing goes with following our flights of fancy, just doing whatever we feel like doing, not really having any kind of purpose, not really having any kind of aim, If that's the kind of life you're trying to build, you wind up with a mess. You wind up with chaos in your life. There needs to be a plan, and especially there needs to be a God plan behind what you're trying to do. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus tells a couple of stories about about this sort of random activity. A king who wants to go to war, but he doesn't know how many people he's going to need. A man who wants to build a tower, but he doesn't necessarily know how expensive it's going to be. When we commit ourselves to these tasks just because we feel like doing it, we wind up embarrassing ourselves, which is not the worst thing in the world. Maybe we can learn from a mistake. But if we are trying to serve God this way, we may come to grips with our shortcomings, our weaknesses, our failures too late. God wants us to not serve whatever kind of itch may be affecting you in the moment, God wants us to pursue long-term interests. He wants us to pursue spiritual things, heaven ultimately. And in this life, pursuing spiritual goals, spiritual ideals in our life. If you just simply go flitting from one fancy to another, you're never going to accomplish anything for the Lord. Ultimately, and we see this especially in Revelation. I'll turn your attention to a couple of churches that are mentioned there in Revelation chapter 2. Churches that contrast The emphasis on results with the emphasis on attitude. Jesus sees a church here in Ephesus that has had tremendous results over the years, that has done great things in the past, and he illuminates some of them and applauds them for it. But he says, You've left your first love. You've forgotten what it means to be a Christian. And this is the one that loses the candlestick, potentially at least, the one that does not commit itself at its core to the things of God, to the things of Christ. Contrast that with the church at Smyrna, which is not necessarily remarkable in any kind of accomplishment area, but that loves the Lord, that is purposeful, that is determined to go in God's way. They're suffering because of it, and Jesus says you're going to suffer some more, but if you will endure until death, endure unto death, depending on the translation that you're reading, You can and you will be successful. God is watching out for you. He knows your heart. He knows that you're trying to do something in His service, and that's ultimately what matters. I'm not suggesting that results are completely irrelevant. That It doesn't matter what you do or what you don't do for the Lord. But whatever we manage to accomplish in His service, if we don't do it with the right attitude. We wind up in the same category as these people that complain to Jesus on judgment day. Lord, Lord, did we not do this? Did we not do that? Look at all the wonderful things that we did in your name. And Jesus says, depart from me, workers of iniquity. I never knew you. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 22 and 23, that's why we have to build on his foundation, as he goes on to say in the story that follows about building the house on the rock instead of the house on the sand. By committing yourselves to Jesus' principles, by building a life the way he wants us to build it, we wind up with the kind of structure, the kind of temple that he wants us to build that glorifies him in our life and hopefully even in the lives of others. That's the legacy we can leave behind for others to come to and view and admire, and hopefully even duplicate, not to our glory, but to his glory. That's the kind of castle that I'm trying to build in my life, the kind of castle that we're all needing to be building in honor of the king. Anyway, that's what I've been playing. You have been listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Thank you for your support. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe through your favorite podcast platform and or on YouTube. Comments, corrections, and suggestions are always welcome. Please feel free to follow me through Facebook, MeWe, Parlor, or Instagram, or check out my webpage, www.halhammons.com. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.